0: Your online community designed to help you connect, reach your summit, and create meaningful adventure experiences with your family. Hello, and welcome to Ordinary Sherpa. I'm your host, Heidi Dusick. About this time of year, every year, our family is off adventuring. So I want to share a quick update and just mention some things that are going to be happening on the podcast. I am taking some intentional time with my family adventuring a considerable amount this summer, but I also wanted to model the lifestyle that I talk about on the show. So I have pre-recorded several episodes throughout June and July, and there also will be episodes dropping. We're still dropping episodes every week, okay? So there's no change there. You'll still hear me each week if you are subscribed. However, I am going to be including a couple best of replays from some of the early days of the podcast. Perhaps some of you haven't had the chance to listen to or maybe have skipped over those. And I just wanted to use those to bring you back to some of the origin story of Ordinary Sherpa. I have been inspired. I want to do less. And this summer is a great opportunity to slow down and be present. And I will periodically be checking email, but generally you're just going to see a little bit less of me. If you would like to go deeper on our lifestyle design and to get ready for fall, you might appreciate reading my book. So if you're feeling like you're missing out, the book has a lot of how we've gotten to where we are today. Beyond Normal, A Field Guide to Embrace Adventure, Explore the Wilderness, and Design an Extraordinary Life with Kids is available on my website or on Amazon It goes great while camping or sitting next to a babbling brook or spending some simple time outdoors this summer. And you can find the links to purchase that on my website, which is OrdinarySherpa.com. This is my attempt to do better. And that is going to pair very well with our episode today, doing better. Doing better is a growth mindset. It's believing that we can all change and learn new things no matter how old we are. Part of how I landed here was because I understood the neuroscience around neuroplasticity, that our brains are constantly evolving based on what we learn. It's not static. Our brains are not plastic. They are very malleable, and we can learn new things no matter how old we are, which is why I thought this episode is something that needs to come to light. I am not good at this, right? It's something I aim to do better at, and I think many of us probably are. It's really hard to be perfect in travel, (laughs) and especially sustainable travel. I really don't believe in perfection. That's why I chuckled. So I had been looking for someone who could share concepts of sustainable travel, who could dive deeper into how to travel better. I wanted more than just natural roughing it type experiences, because Quite honestly, if things are going to be harder, I don't know that I'm going to willingly sign up for them. But I also know that it's just not as realistic for me, especially if I've got a couple kids in tow. I also wanted to do something more than just talking about what's trendy. You know, eco-friendly accommodations all of a sudden have this appeal to people and businesses are catching on. I wanted to dive deep into sustainable concepts like carbon offsetting for dummies, <laughs> the convergence of minimalist principles and environmentally friendly power of less. I was excited when I found our guest website where the homepage highlights it's not about being perfect. It's about doing better. She uses a different way of doing something familiar, in this case, a different way to travel. And you will soon realize or recognize the alignment to the principles of untourism and might even see small businesses doing sustainability travel well on her website. So while riding up the escalator at TravelCon, I shared I had a podcast and she and I exchanged business cards and I immediately made a note to follow up with her. Kenny Wilhelm is a former freelance travel writer and the founder of TiltedMap.com, which is a blog about sustainability, travel, and zero waste. She left Montana after college with a job teaching English to 300 university students in China and a side hustle as a freelance magazine writer, and just one word of Mandarin and no background in education. She determined her husband, who was the right partner after two months living in a minivan and many other adventures. Feeling left out of the conversations with her husband's friend, who was from Italy, she determined to learn Italian. She has received her master's degree in sustainable business and energy from Bocconi University in Milan, Italy, and has lived in China, Italy, and France. She's since returned to the United States and back to her roots in writing. Ketty Wilhelm of Tilted Map, welcome to Ordinary Sherpa. Thank you, Heidi. Oh my gosh, that sounds so fancy to hear that
1: red <laughs> <That's> me.
0: <amazing. laughs> yeah, right. So I want to start like we're going to go through this little journey because you have a fascinating backstory. And as I was going through your blog, I was like deeply immersed in so many different topics. So I we're going to get to sustainability, travel and zero waste. But I want to just start back with a little bit of your own journey. Can we go back to this decision to take a job abroad in the first place? You graduate from college and what happens? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean,
1: I studied journalism in college. And so all of my classmates were taking jobs, mostly at small town newspapers in different little towns around the country. And I just didn't want to do that. It's like, I didn't know what I wanted to do. But I just, I wanted to go abroad. That was the thing that had always interested me my entire life. You know, I have like, I have memories of being four years old and sitting there with a globe on the kitchen counter. In front of my mom, spinning the globe and stopping it with my finger and saying, "Mom, I'm going to go to
0: Mozambique. I'm going to go to this place."
1: (laughs) And I don't know. I don't know where it came from. I got to travel a lot in college, luckily through different programs and semester abroad and stuff like that. But I got. I finished college, and I just thought, I'm not done. I just want to go somewhere again, and I want to go somewhere not for a month, but really go and be immersed. So I applied for all kinds of jobs all over the world, honestly. And I mean, NGOs, teaching, journalism. And this was the one that bit, you know, through a friend of a friend, I ended up getting this offer to teach English at a university in China, which I was woefully unqualified for. I mean, (laughs) it was seriously, I think it was, uh, I think that the thought process was kind of like, well, she's a writer, and she's a native English speaker. So that must mean she can teach English which is absolutely not true. I had no idea what I was doing. I was making it up as I went along, but it was a huge learning experience for both me and the students. But yeah, that just got the living abroad into my system. And I ended up living in five different countries over the course of five years. No, wait, that's not true. Four different countries over the course of five years. That's
0: okay. ish, <laughs> well, ish. I always like to throw I get confused eye. sometimes
1: too, but
0: yeah. Very funny. And I know you've now, I mean, having lived in five different countries, you have some tips and I actually found a resource on your website, which I'll include in the show notes, but just being an expat and life as an expat and some of your experiences and tips, because I know people all the time are asking questions and exploring things such as expat life. So can you just share some of your maybe key takeaways, just a couple high level things that you would offer to those exploring expat life? Oh,
1: man, you know, I think that if I had thought too hard about what I know now, or if I had known what I was going to do wrong, I might not have done it. Mm. (laughs) And so I think maybe my ignorance was kind of a key asset in getting me to just take whatever job, because honestly, every full time, you know, employee job that I've had since college has been, I've taken the job in order to move to the country that was attached to the job. Oh, funny. And so that's been a key driver. That's really like simplified the process a lot for me. And that has also simplified the decision of where do I want to move? Cause I didn't move to, I mean, I studied French and Spanish and a little bit of Arabic in college. I had no reason to move to China, but it was like, okay, here there's a plan here. There's a job, which number one means you have a little bit of a built-in community when you get there you have something to do you know somebody's expecting you to show up for something you're not just like okay i'm here i live here now like you know who wants me people are actually looking for you to do something for them you get to be a part of the local economy a part of the local community and so i think that moving abroad for a job and that can mean just like find a job it doesn't have to be your dream job teaching was never my dream job but just use the job kind of as an excuse as a tool to get abroad, I think is probably the best thing that I learned. And I would totally do it again.
0: Really? Oh, yeah. So fun. Yeah. So how do you begin looking even for job? You said on, you know, your first one was like through a friend of a friend. What about in France and in Italy? And what was the other country?
1: Yeah, so my first one was through a friend of a friend. The other country, so I lived in Nicaragua for a couple of months, and that was I was actually a trip leader for a company based out of Montana, which is where I'm from, called Visions Service Adventures, and they do these um, high school service learning trips. So it was like I was guiding summer trips for groups there. I think that's a great way to find jobs because there's a ton of those companies out there, and that's a great way to be integrated into a place for a couple months, usually. And so then you at least like you get a foothold, you know, you Mm -hmm. get to test it out. And then if you want to stay longer, you can usually. So yeah, the job in China was through this random connection through a friend of a friend. But I mean, teaching jobs, there are a million different job boards online where you can find those. That's not that hard to do. The one thing I would recommend if anybody is actually thinking about getting a teaching job is to get a TEFL certificate first to get a teaching English as a foreign language. Certificate first. Again, that's one of those hindsight is 2020. I did not have one and I had no idea how to teach. Oh, sure. <laughs> the point of this certificate is it actually teaches you what to do in the classroom. So I would say get that certificate and don't take a job from somebody who doesn't require you to have one of those certificates. And then let's see, France was that was a job that I got through my university. So I actually Italy was the place where I lived the longest and it's the one place where I didn't work, but it's because my husband is from there. Mm. We met when we both lived in China as expats and we ended up moving back. Like you mentioned in the intro, after we'd been living together in a van for a couple months in New Zealand, we ended up saying, okay, we need to settle down somewhere. And so we moved back to Italy back for him and just to Italy for me. And I ended up going to grad school there. And when I finished grad school, the only, you know, job quote unquote job offers I was getting in Italy despite the fact that I spoke Italian by that point were unpaid internships Mm -hmm. and I was like okay I'm you know (laughs) I'm an adult I have lots of work experience I I speak four languages I don't really want to do an unpaid internship right now and I had an offer for a full-time job in France so I said all right that sounds like a great way to start another adventure and actually make some money again so that's what brought me there yeah
0: very cool. Very cool. I love that you suggest, you know, the job is the tool because it does. It defines a lot of things then that you don't have to figure out. You have a source of income. You have, like you said, a built-in community. You have some, you know, some structure, I guess, to what is possible, but it integrates you into a space and gives you a purpose when you get there. So it's kind of nice. And I like the fact that you said it's not always a dream job, right? It's an entry point to get into the country that you're interested in. I love that. Absolutely. I want to shift and maybe talk a little bit about your master's degree and how you got into sustainability and travel and zero waste, but before we go there, like what does sustainable travel mean to you? When you talk about sustainable travel, what does that mean?
1: Yeah, so I think there are so many misconceptions that, you know, people think sustainable travel has to mean like an eco-lodge in the rainforest in Costa Rica kind of thing. And, you know, I'm perfectly into that. A lot of people who listen to your show, since they're interested in adventure, might be perfectly into that. But I get that a lot of people are not about that. And they think that that's the only way to travel more sustainably. And it's really just not true because what I always say is sustainable travel, just like sustainable almost anything in life, is about where you spend your money. So there are companies doing any kind of travel more sustainably. You know, there are airlines that are better than others. There are cruise companies that are better than others. Cruise companies are, you know, there's not a lot that are very good, but there's a lot of gray area. And so I think it's really important for people to remember that where they spend their money matters. Spending their money with local businesses and small businesses can have a huge impact. And then also, I mean, it's like you were saying before about... Simplicity, mm-hmm. simplifying your life. I think that simplifying your travel choices can be a really powerful way to to be more sustainable. Also, and that's things like okay, you want to go to an island in the Caribbean. Go to the island that you have a direct flight to from your hometown. You know that can be your deciding factor instead of it being this big production of of looking for the you know the eco resort or looking for just other factors that you know that complicate the decision. Also things like do the things that you wish you would do when you're at home while you Mm -hmm. travel, like order the veggie option on the menu because you know that there's a much lower carbon footprint for a plant-based diet than versus meat. So look into taking the trains, look into using local transportation, make an effort to do things like this and you can reduce your footprint in a meaningful way that doesn't have to be really complicated or really expensive.
0: Yeah, I love that. Let's talk about carbon footprint, because you mentioned that. Do you track your carbon footprint? Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, so I'm actually in the process of calculating mine right now, because I actually, I joined this organization that's called Tourism Declares a Climate Emergency. Mm. And it is mostly big travel companies, tour companies, things like that. And I think maybe a couple of blogs, but it's like I think I might be the only one person business that's in declares <laughs> a climate emergency. And the whole point is you're supposed to calculate your emissions for an average year, which at this point is very hard. So I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go with 2019 and say maybe that's more average. Calculate your emissions from travel. And for me, since I'm joining as a business, not just as an individual, it's gonna be okay, what's all the travel that I Wrote about for my blog, but then also emissions from things like my website, my home office, stuff like that, and then figure out how to reduce them. Because that's like, that's really the most important thing, both for individuals and when you're looking for more sustainable travel companies. You want to be looking for companies that talk about carbon reduction before they talk about carbon offsets. Okay. I'm going to end up doing some offsetting also because part of tourism declares a climate emergency is calculate your footprint, and then reduce it by 50% or something like that. So that's, you know, considering that I write about travel, I fly around the world, a lot of that is unavoidable, it's going to be offsets. But you really want to look for companies that are talking about reduction.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Can you just dive deeper into like, I just want to make sure my listeners understand what is carbon offsetting and carbon footprinting? Like, how do they calculate that? And what does that actually do for the environment? Why is that better?
1: Yeah, good point. These are kind of jargony terms. So your carbon footprint for a trip is going to be everything that you did related to that trip. So the car that you drove to get to the airport, what are the you know grams of carbon emitted per mile to drive that car? The flight to the location. Once you get to the location, what kind of food are you eating? Like I was saying before, you know, eating beef is going to have a much higher carbon footprint than eating vegetables. Is the food imported in that location? That's going to mean additional carbon footprint for your diet there. Um, what kind of hotel are you staying in? What is the power mix, which means how is the electricity generated mm. in the place where you're staying? So that gives you what's the carbon footprint of staying in a hotel there. Ideally, you're looking for a hotel that has its own, you know, solar panels on the roof and produce its own renewable energy. That's great, but honestly, that's really hard to find. And I spend, you know half of my work days looking for that kind of place. And it's not easy to track down these kind of needle in the haystack places. More likely it's going to be, okay, if you're staying in Norway, they have a lot of carbon-free electricity produced there, which means that your hotel, because they have geothermal, they have a lot of hydropower with dams and stuff. So staying in a hotel there is going to have a lower carbon footprint versus staying in a hotel... I don't know in Pennsylvania or something where there's lots of where it's lots of coal-fired power plants. So that's the carbon footprint. I think that whenever I explain this to people, their eyes kind of glaze over, and I (laughs) get it because my eyes kind of glaze over too. Like that's why I've been. This has been on my to-do list to be like, okay, I need to do these calculations for six months, and I haven't gotten to it yet because it is just oh, it's so dense, yeah, it's so overwhelming, it's so technical, and it's so easy to get lost in the weeds and to think like, oh gosh, it really matters that I figure out what kind of car I rode in to get to the airport for that flight. No, it doesn't matter. Like you should go for the big rocks, you know, put the big rocks in the car before the small rocks, that kind of concept. Look for the major pieces of the puzzle, which are almost always going to be flights, transportation, driving. Also, those are the first things to look at. Calculate those, the details, Yeah, the devil is in the details, but really, it's not going to be worth your time.
0: Yeah, I actually really appreciate. It. Right on, like the home screen of your website, you say, "Getting better is better than getting perfect." Right? It's having this intention around knowing what certain things are better and working towards better, as opposed to like having it all figured out and spending. Time glazing over the details and diving into like a research project. And I think that's what I'm hearing from you right now, right? Yeah. Is like, yes, you're doing it because it means a lot to your mission and what you're doing. And you want to, you know, I I think it's valuable and meaningful. And if you're someone that just cares about sustainability and travel and the environment and zero waste, like that doesn't mean you have to offset everything you do (laughs) or reduce everything you do. You know, it's just a matter of like, how can I get better?
1: Yeah. I mean, perfect is the enemy of good. Right,
0: That's what I always say. And I think it's so easy for
1: people, especially with something as technical as you know, carbon offsets, carbon footprints, sustainability. It's so easy for people to be like, oh, that's hard. I don't get it. I feel like I'm probably doing a bad job of it. So I'm just not even going to try. I'm just going to kind of ignore it. And so that's what I try to avoid. So that was the first half of, of your question about carbon footprints, carbon offsets. Basically, in short, um, a carbon offset is applying a monetary value to every pound of carbon dioxide that's emitted. And then you're essentially making a donation to an organization that's doing something that will offset that carbon, which the most legitimate ones usually are like tree planting. That's one of the best ones to look for. There are lots of, I mean, I can get into more about what to look for and what not to look for if you want.
0: Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Tell. I think it's just interesting more than anything. So, it's helpful. I think if people are curious about this, to help know what they want to look for.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I agree. So for offsets, another way to look at it is it's essentially like you're taxing yourself for the carbon that you're emitting. So it's kind of like an a lot. You know, in some countries they do tax people for the carbon that they emit. We don't. But it's like you're applying a value, which, depending on different systems, different carbon offsetting. Programs that you can buy into. This is again like I'm going to go off in the weeds for a second, but some of them will apply a value of one dollar per kilogram of carbon dioxide emitted. Some will apply a value of nine hundred dollars. So it's like you can really, you can really pay different rates for how much you decide that you want to tax yourself. But one of the most important things to look for is, yeah, sure, okay, what value are they saying that a kilogram of carbon dioxide has? Like I think the Obama administration used something like fifty or sixty dollars a kilogram or maybe it was a pound i don't actually remember but either way you want to look for programs that are local so if you're looking for like a tree planting program yeah sure you can definitely you can find really good third party certified well run programs all over the world and that's fine i think a couple of the best ones to look for are ecology is one it's i think it's e c o l o g i another is the gold standard and these are like just really well run programs where they're they're planting trees and Things like they are keeping track of what's the tree death rate, right? Because it's not just, okay, we planted a tree. Now the carbon <laughs> is sequestered because the, the tree has sucked the carbon out of the air. And now everything is hunky <laughs> dory and we can just forget about it. There are programs where they plant the tree and then, okay, but is that tree going to be cut down to go to a paper mill in two years? Okay, that doesn't count. Right? Are these programs making sure to plant trees in the right season? which means that they're more likely to survive? Are they planting trees that are local species that, are, that should be planted in that place? And so one, they're more likely to survive and two, they're not introducing um, you know, an invasive species to wherever they're doing this project. So those are a lot of things that you can look for um, with tree planting for carbon offsets. And there are a lot of things that like, if you ask anybody who's running one of these programs, these questions, they are going to have answers for them if they're legitimate, you know. So it's very easy to be as long as if you know what questions to ask. If you ask what's your tree death rate? That's something that any legitimate program is tracking. And what's your tree death rate this year and what was it last year? You know, are you improving? Are you keeping track of that? Things like that that it's just if you know what questions to ask, it can be a lot easier to find good programs. And then one other thing is you want to look for so tree planting is falls in the category of carbon removal, right? Cuz the trees, like use photosynthesis, they suck the carbon dioxide out of the air, use it to build the tree, as opposed to carbon avoidance, because carbon avoidance is usually something, usually some form of like paying for people not to cut down trees, or not to, you know, burn wood in their cook stoves or something like that, which obviously, there's a lot of equity issues with that. So it's just best avoided,
0: mm-hmm.
1: avoid avoidance.
0: Yeah. Interesting. We kind of went down the rabbit hole, but I thought it was fascinating. I really appreciate that because I have really very limited knowledge myself. So that's why I just wanted to like pull the curtain back a little bit so people understand like this can get really complicated, but here are some simple ways. I want to start bringing us back out to some of the simple ways though. Like what are some of the things you've noticed in travel? You mentioned early about like where you spend your money and buying local is really important. Can you share maybe a couple of locations that are good in the sustainability and travel space, you know, that you prefer to visit and share maybe kind of pros and cons to those experiences versus maybe one that's not as good. And you, Don't have to like name names. I mean, name the ones that are good. (laughs) But but you don't necessarily have to like point out all the bad ones per se. I just I want some comparison value.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, honestly, this is one of the things that I really want people to
0: understand more is that there isn't
1: one people ask me this all the time, what's the most sustainable place you can travel? It depends on what you do when you get there. Right. That's what I always say. So I mean, I just came back from a trip to Mississippi. To the Mississippi Delta region, which is one of the poorest areas in the country by a lot of statistics. Also very culturally rich and very beautiful with lots of history and a fascinating trip. And I was staying in a hotel there that is owned by a local nonprofit that funds an artist residence for local artists that's doing, you know, that all of their toiletries were all these refillable things instead of the single use plastic shampoo bottles The air conditioning was set to like something comfortable. It wasn't like you walked in and it was 60 degrees. They were doing everything right. And they were in the Mississippi Delta. You know, this is not Costa Rica. This is not Norway. This is not the places that people think of when they think about sustainable travel. So it really is about seeking out places like that to make any place that you're going more sustainable. And that's hard. Yeah, totally. That's hard. So that's what I try to, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I try to, Shout from the Rooftops about on my blog is when I find places like this, I want people to support them because I want it to be profitable for these Mm -hmm. businesses to be doing all of these things right because that's not cheap, right? But when I find something like that, it's like that hotel like that is gold. It's called the Traveler's Hotel, by the way, in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Awesome place. Yeah, I just wrote a whole article about that. Another great example, another on oh, the positive side example, was a place that I visited this fall, an island called Paros, Paros, um, P-A-R-O-S, in Greece. And what I love about this place is there's a local organization there called Clean Blue Paros that is trying to essentially get all the local businesses to stop using single-use plastics. And so I noticed a difference. This organization has been there uh, maybe about two years or something like that. And I noticed a difference between traveling around that island versus traveling around Naxos, which is the island right, you know, 45-minute ferry away. That when I would ask a bartender to refill my Nalgene bottle on Paros, they were totally used to it. They were totally fine with it because this organization has been there and they've been developing that culture. And so they and also developing literally the infrastructure because now all the bars will have filtered water dispensers, because it tastes a little better than the tap water, even though the tap water is totally potable. But on the next island over, there's none of that. And people still A, want to sell me a bottle of a plastic bottle of water. B, that the tap water is poisonous. And they're just not, you know, they're just not there yet. So if you're just saying, I want to go to a Greek island for a vacation. If you go to a patos, so you're going to have automatically lower, a smaller footprint than if you go to other islands because of this local group doing something really special there.
0: Yeah. Thank you for those examples. I think that's really helpful just to see, you know, how people act or react or just like what is the common culture around sustainable travel principles. And then this isn't like a destination, right? You're not just like, oh, we're going to go here and it's going to be all perfect. It's definitely A work in progress. I'm assuming you are a work in progress, uh, given that statement. How did you get into this? Like, how did you start to learn the practices? When did you start to notice? And what are some of the things you did early on? And how are you getting better? Oh, gosh.
1: I mean, how I got started is like 10 years ago, I'm not sure I would have seen this coming. I was very involved in um, more social sustainability stuff in college, which is also a huge part of sustainability and travel. It's like, that's why I say, spend your money with local businesses because more of your dollar stays local and supports the local community. Like you can't separate the social sustainability from the environmental sustainability, but I never expected to be, you know, quote unquote, an environmentalist or to be really involved in environmental sustainability, maybe because I I grew up in a place, I mean, I grew up like in the middle of the woods of Montana in a very rural place where environmentalism was still kind of like I don't know. A little bit of a dirty word it was a little bit of like, oh, what are these hippies doing? Mm-hmm. And I think that even in college, I kind of, I kind of didn't like the like very crunchy granola aspect of sustainability and, and the environmental studies program at my college and stuff like that because it wasn't focused on like systems thinking. How can we improve the economic system to consider the environment also? Mm -hmm. Right. Also consider financial sustainability, but also the environment. It was just. It felt just kind of like you know we're going to go off and live our own separate life, and make our own deodorant, and you know do all this stuff. Which is like, okay, great. If you want to do that, that's (laughs) that's fine. Great. But for me, like, I want somebody else to make the deodorant for me. I want them to do it well, and I want them to not you know not create a bunch of unnecessary waste. I love how. Sustainable travel kind of lets you be part of the larger economy, but finding ways to do better within that system.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And like you had said, you know, there's things even in the intro, you know, it's about doing better, but also like reducing your waste, reducing the amount of single use plastics. It's interesting. I read, actually, I haven't completely read. I'm reading a book and I can't even tell you what the name of it is now, which is horrible, but I will put it in the show notes because I will go look it up now because I can't think of what it is. And it starts comparing like, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, single use plastics are bad. You know, we kind of put that like bad term on it. But yeah, to give you an example, the straw thing was kind of interesting because there was like a social phenomenon about a turtle who got a straw stuck in it and it kind of created this big outcry. And then there were things that were happening. So straws were banned and we were using different types of straws. And that's not necessarily bad. However, some people have replaced it with like a different type of lid that actually uses more plastic than a straw. So (laughs) it's kind of like, well, you know, we kind of missed the point then. We didn't really solve the problem because we still are creating waste. It's not a sustainable option that's replaced it. And I think sometimes just because we, you know, we're focused on one piece of it, like reducing single-use plastics, we also kind of lose the cart or we maybe put the cart before the horse or we lose the force behind the trees or something, because we also forget that there are other ways that we can be sustainable or reduce our waste beyond just i mean, single-use plastic. And again, I know that's just one example of a sustainability movement, but you know, we've talked a lot about. Having your own refillable water bottle that's not recyclable versus having a glass glass that is recyclable and it's easy to break down, you know, it might break. It's not ideal when you're traveling or uh in, you know, an airport or something like that. You know, it doesn't travel well, obviously, but it is actually better to have a glass glass than these new trendy water bottles that have come about. So those have been really interesting things to think about as well is does the container that I have, is it recyclable? And so I think. You know those types of things have also been interesting for me, and I know for a long time you talked a lot about the trees. I live in Northeast Wisconsin and it's paper mill, you know, area, and so we were educated for a long time that when the trees are cut for paper mills, they're also replanted, and paper is actually recyclable. So cutting mm-hmm. trees to make paper is not always the worst enemy. We also need to think about what isn't recyclable and how are we reducing those things because those are the things that are ending up in landfills. So it's been really interesting journey for me as well. But yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I think if I was now if I'm a traveler, especially, you know, and I always focus a lot of my audience are travelers or adventure families. What are things that just like we should be conscientious of, you know, in terms of being better? What's something I could do today to at least notice and be aware of to be a better steward of the environment of zero waste of sustainability practices?
1: Oh, man. Okay. There are so many thoughts about all the things you just said. Before I get to the question, just about the idea of like, yeah, cutting down trees for paper is not bad. I totally agree. Like I use right. paper all the time. Cutting down trees for paper is not bad. It's just that cutting down trees for paper, when those trees have been promised to a carbon offsetting program, right. that's to guarantee that they're not going to be cut down. That's the thing that's bad. But yeah, you're right, paper is extremely recyclable as long as we're recycling it, keep using it. I still read books on paper because I like to take notes and you know write in the margins. Yeah. So I totally get that. Straws also I think have become kind of this like thing that people like to poke fun at as if it's just this ridiculous concept because yeah, it can be done badly, it can be replaced with things that also have issues, but also you know, at the root of it is a very legitimate problem. Like straws are a bad <laughs> straws are something that we just need to get rid of the habit of using. How long have we been using straws? 50 years? Like it's not like it's not like this is a necessary part of society. And I think that's the way I look at a lot of single use plastic stuff is really we have developed the habit of buying a plastic water bottle every single day just in the last few decades, we've developed the habit of having all of our shampoo and our face wash and our body wash and our shaving cream in five different plastic bottles, just in the last few decades, you know, these are not necessary things where it's like, well, it's always been that way, it has to be that way. And a lot of the companies that I'm writing about now, like when I on this is on the zero waste side of, of what I write about on my blog, a lot of the companies that I write about are doing very old fashioned things. They're bringing back uh, shampoo bars, you know, instead of a shampoo in a bottle, they're bringing back like old fashioned concepts that were really have always been more sustainable. And that's just the way that we used to do things before we discovered plastics, which was, you know, in the forties and the fifties, when plastics started to become cheap and accessible, and we started using them for everything. So honestly, so to get to your actual question. Honestly, I do think that using less plastic is a very simple, accessible thing that people can do really easily in their everyday lives. People talk a lot. I hear a lot about, oh, we want sustainable clothing brands. We want, you know, we want, should we buy an electric vehicle? And it's like, okay, yes, those things are great for when you need to replace those items. But going out and saying, I'm going to replace my entire wardrobe with clothing that's from a sustainable, you know, organic, fair trade clothing line. Well, if that just means that you're buying new stuff that's not necessary, it's not really ideal. That's why I focus on things like shampoo, things like dish soap, things like toothpaste tablets that come in a paper packet instead of a tube of toothpaste that's in a, you know, in a package that's made out of three different layers of plastic and metal and and whatever, and it's not recyclable. I focus on those things because those are things that everybody's going to buy every few months anyway. So you might as well buy them in more sustainable packaging. I think that's one like super easy thing to start switching. I mean, I know it can be overwhelming at first when you start looking at different products, at least if you're kind of a type A personality like I am, and you're like, I need need to find the best one. That's why I write these super detailed reviews is because I'm like, maybe somebody wants to know everything and I'm going to tell them all the information. And then other things are like looking at things like, like I mentioned before, look for, take a trip that's a direct flight instead of someplace that's further away. Like make that one of your criteria for deciding where you're going to go. Take the train. I mean, I've taken Amtrak three days across the country a couple of times. I'm not sure if that's actually a lower impact because it's a train with diesel engines. But like in Europe, you can take electric trains all over the place. So things like that that are really honestly kind of, I don't want to say obvious, but they're kind of simple options mm-hmm. that are already there. And it's just a matter of sometimes you kind of have to go against the grain or you have to go against like the things that have become our habits, you know? Yeah. We're just in the habit of, oh, I'll just take the flight. It's just an hour flight. Well, it might be. Four hour train ride, you know?
0: Right. Or we take the cheapest route, which is like four stops in an airplane because of money being the motivator, as opposed to like, there is a better way. You know, maybe the dollars is not worth the time or the emissions, like you mentioned. Yeah, exactly. And when you look at, I mean, when you talk about the social side of sustainability, when I
1: start looking at, okay, do I want to pay the extra couple hundred dollars for a direct flight? I mean, sometimes it's more than that. It's like, well, I can technically and when you think about the fact that it's like only 2 or 3% of people on the globe are ever going to be able to fly in an airplane like i'm already uh doing pretty well if i'm even considering any kind of a flight and i know obviously that's you know that becomes hard once especially when you've got kids and when you're trying to travel a lot and nobody wants to be like well should i feel bad for the fact that i'm flying and so i have to buy the most expensive flight but i just think it's you know, I just think it's something to keep in mind, something to kind of consider.
0: Yeah, awesome. I want to actually highlight a blog post that you have called, um, trying to pull it up, The Lazy Guide to More Sustainable Travel. I'm going to link it in the show notes because I also thought there was some just really helpful tips for even if I'm I'm not in the travel brain, right? I don't think about, or I'm not in the sustainability brain. I might not be thinking about these things, or I don't even know they're a problem because they've been ingrained in me over years and years and years. I've been building these habits of maybe bad practices. I mean, they're really simple. And I thought, you know, maybe we could just walk through that actually next is oh, yeah. you've touched on already, like keep it simple and try new things. You know, like you said, plastic is a relatively new thing, but if we go back to old fashioned practices, You know, that that's not really a new thing, but it might be new to us because we haven't been exposed to it, especially depending on how old you are. But do you want to talk a little bit about like if I'm researching what to look for, things to look for maybe in travel companies or sustainability certifications that I might look for? You already talked a little bit about like carbon reduction versus carbon offsetting. But are there things in a company that I might want to look for if I was choosing to travel with certain companies? Yeah,
1: sure. I mean, there are definitely certifications to look for. This is again, I feel like every question I'm like diving off into the weeds, like talk about the most technical thing we could possibly discuss. There are definitely certifications to look for. Some of the simple ones are like carbon free fund. I think it's called there's one called climate neutral. It's pretty difficult, honestly, to find travel companies that are Carbon neutral certified, but there are quite a few Atlas Obscura offsets. I think 120 or something like that percent of their carbon emissions. Intrepid is definitely the best one that I know of. They've been carbon neutral for I want to say since like 2009 or something like that, and that is through it's through a lot of offsets. So it's through a lot of obviously you know they're flying people around the world, and then they're buying these offsets to plant trees to to make up for that. But it's also what they do that's really great is they do a lot of reduction. And I mean, I've actually, I've had calls with, they have like a, I don't know what her title is, but like a chief environment officer, chief impact officer. They hired a climate scientist in house to be the person who is handling how they're going to improve their footprint and reduce their footprint. And that is something that I haven't seen any other travel company doing. So there's definitely, there's definitely a lot of companies that are doing something a little bit better like that, or a lot better like that. Some of the other common ones to look for that are not just unique to the travel industry, but like 1% for the planet. I'm actually, I'm actually joining that for my blog. I'm joining 1% for the planet, which means that I'm agreeing to donate 1% of revenue to um, environmental organizations. And there are some, you'll find some travel companies that have that certification also. Another one is B Corp certification, which um, Intrepid is also a B Corp, which I don't know if you're familiar with that.
0: Yeah, but you can go ahead and explain it because I don't know if listeners are. Yeah, sure. So B Corp, it's a certification, which you'll see
1: it's a capital B in a circle. You'll see it like at the bottom. If you scroll to the bottom of a company's website, if they're a B Corp member, you'll see it or you'll see it on like chocolate packaging all kinds of different companies. And it's basically it's a it's a triple bottom line. So it's this company is agreeing to consider the normal bottom line, the financial bottom line, and also social environmental factors. So it doesn't mean necessarily the same thing for every company, but usually it's like they they have a lot of different environmental sustainability practices and also, you know, fair hiring practices, avoiding sweatshop labor, health and safety for workers, stuff like that. All kinds of different considerations. Those are three things that you'll find kind of in the travel industry and everywhere else. When you start looking for them, you'll see these logos. You'll, you'll start noticing them on packaging. You'll start noticing them at the bottom of people's websites. And you're like, oh, I know what that is. And it's like a, it's like a scavenger hunt.
0: Yes. Yes. And you have a lot of tips and I'm going to include this in the show notes so people can dig into, you know, just in the planning process. What are you looking for? It gives you a lot of really great insights. And I just I really appreciated it because I think you there's a lot. I can't we can't go through all of these on the show. Um, That would be another whole episode. Yeah. But I want people to know that this resource exists and there are ways to look for things specifically or companies that are doing better. Yeah. And leaving less of a footprint. How about that? <laughs> Exactly, because that's the thing. It's not going to be perfect,
1: but you know, we have to accept that that's okay. It can still be better. So, you just mentioned specific things to look for. And I think that is the key word. If you're looking at a company and you're like, okay, let's see if they have a sustainability tab on their website. Okay, click on that. If you don't see any certifications you recognize, or if you don't really understand what they're talking about, are they talking about specific actions or are they saying vague general things like, we do our best to care for the environment. And we, you know, things that's like, what does that mean, right? Are they talking about specific actions, specific improvements, numbers? This is our strategy. This is, you know, this was our footprint in this year. And this is our goal. Like, that's the main thing is if you don't know what to look for, look for details because companies that are doing something legitimate and that are really improving their footprint are going to share details about it.
0: Awesome. That's great. I think you give so many insights, and clearly we could go down the rabbit hole. And I spent plenty of time on your website, so on your blog and, and all the resources that you have there, Katie, Thank you so much. If is there anything else you want to share that I didn't ask about, or you think would be helpful for my audience?
1: Oh gosh, I mean, I was thinking about this this morning because I was thinking, gosh, you you do a lot of things with families, obviously, and I don't have kids yet, but. What I love noticing is it seems like kids are so much more in tune to sustainability issues than adults a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And so I just think it would be fascinating to hear if any of your listeners like listen to this with their kids and their kids already know what I'm talking about or, you know, or if their kids are like already interested in this topic or ask their kids what they think about it, because I always just think that's fascinating and and gives me a lot of hope to see how many kids are so tuned in on these topics.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's actually a really interesting conversation. I'm going to have this conversation with my kids following this. I really appreciate you suggesting that, actually. If people want to dive in, they want to go down the rabbit hole, as I have started, how can they find you? What's the best place to find you, follow you, support you? What could they do?
1: Yeah, so my website is definitely where I do the bulk of my work and that's tiltedmap.com. So if people want to go there and sign up for my email list, that's the best way to like keep in touch with new blog posts that I'm writing, um, both about like product reviews and all kinds of, of travel stuff. And then I'm also on Instagram at Tilted Map and Facebook at Tilted Map as well.
0: Yeah, and you would actually also mention, and I did not bring this up and I apologize. Just one of the zero waste movement initiatives that is coming up, and since this will be posting in mid June, we maybe we just want to talk about Plastic Free July really quick. Do you want to give any heads up on that?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, Plastic Free July is just kind of it's a movement that was started, I believe, by a nonprofit in Australia several years ago, and it's just kind of one of these you know sort of made up holidays like to bring awareness to an issue, and so it's like you use the month of July to focus on using less plastic, plastic free. I'm I'm saying it in quotes, but focus on using less plastic. And that was actually kind of one of the catalysts for me starting to write reviews of plastic free products a few years ago, is I was inspired by this plastic free July movement. So yeah, that's something that I'm always kind of excited for.
0: Very cool. Yeah. And it could be simple things. Like I said that I'll link the lazy guide to more sustainable travel too, because I think it starts to give you some tips on how could I do that? What are some of the products that I might want to use instead, or even things like the packaging that they use? Do they use paper instead? So I think it's a, it'll yeah. be a really interesting. It's maybe a good challenge or a kickoff point for people that may want to do something, but not know where to start. It might be a good impetus to get started. I think it's, yeah, I think it's a gateway drug for sure. Awesome. Well, Katie, thank you so much. You are a wealth of knowledge. I really appreciate your insights, all that you had to share. And yeah, I really appreciate we'll uh, be in touch. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Heidi. I appreciate it. Thank you, Katie. I'm so excited. I have 10 key takeaways from this episode. Number one, Katie took the job as a tool to get to the next country. Having the job first simplified the decision of where to move and offered a built-in community. There is a link to an article on her blog, 11 Strategies from a Serial Expert, that I've included in the show notes. Number two, Ketty initially focused on sustainability from the social aspect perspective, which is essential to the sustainable travel efforts. Number three, where you spend your money matters. Number four, when traveling, make an effort to live a similar lifestyle to what you would at home. Number five, the intent is to do better not be perfect. Simple habit changes over time drastically improve the curve. Number six, carbon reduction is the process where an organization directly reduces greenhouse gas emissions through efficiencies, while carbon offsetting is a trade-off where companies get credit for funding external projects that reduce emissions. One example of an offset program is planting trees. Ideally, you're looking for carbon reduction over carbon offsets. They're both good but carbon reduction actually reduces overall use and carbon footprint. Number seven, some ways individuals can reduce their carbon footprint is to eat less meat, reduce single-use plastics by using shampoo bars, or seeking hotels that offer refillable dispensers over small short-term-use sample-sized toiletries. Number eight, where you go is less critical than how you act when you get there. Ketty started her blog to showcase that sustainable travel is more than eco-lodges and thatched-roofed accommodations. Ketty shared an example of a hotel in Mississippi Delta region who was doing so many things well. Likewise, on the Paros in Greek Isles, it was more socially acceptable to have a bartender fill her water bottle with tap versus suggesting she buy a single-use bottle of water. Oftentimes, it's the culture. It's how acceptable these practices are. Number nine, The Lazy Guide to More Sustainable Travel is a blog post, again linked in the show notes below, that can help you determine what to look for when making travel decisions. One example is a B Corp certification, which means a company has a triple bottom line, financial, social, and environmental. Number 10, Plastic Free July is an initiative of the zero waste movement to encourage people to notice their use patterns and make an effort to reduce plastic use and consumption. It is interesting to me that many of the principles that she discussed overlap with similar principles of minimalism and untourism, a term I use to travel differently and support local businesses. If you were inspired by this episode to do better in some way, let's play show and tell. Post on Instagram, tag Ordinary Sherpa, send me an email or a DM, or better yet, leave a written review. Or go follow Katie and let her know you found her because of Ordinary Sherpa. Until next week, I look forward to hearing all of your adventures and tips and how you are practicing how to do better. Until then, keep on adventuring. If you found value from today's show, here are three easy ways you can support us.